For today's IVX highlight episode, I thought I'd give you a full interview instead of the short highlight reels to give you an idea of what we've been up to with the incredible IVX speakers. This one is a conversation with Dr. Claire Sharp I had this morning about a topic that I thought would be a quick 10 or 15 minute review of the different prokinetic drugs, like what works, what doesn't, doses, side effects, etc. But we went so much deeper. Dr. Claire talks us through when you should be using them and very importantly, what you should look at before you start them to look for potentially fixable causes of GI hypomotility before you just try and fix it with drugs. We detour into a great discussion around pain control as it pertains to finding the balance between sufficient pain control and not paralyzing the gut even further with your opioids. And then, yes, we do review the different prokinetics with a total pro guide on how to use each of them. Enjoy. Oh, and if you like this conversation, this is exactly the sort of thing I do in our clinical podcast. Plus, I'll make show notes for this and store it in our searchable database because I know you're going to forget all of the details about seven seconds after you push stop on this podcast. Check out our nearly 500 episodes in ECC, Medicine and Surgery at vvn.supercast.com or click the link in the show description right where you're listening to this now for our exclusive and very short-lived IVEX 40% discount. Okay, Dr. Claire and everything you ever wanted to know and a few things that you didn't know that you had to know about prokinetics. Dr. Claire Sharp, Hi. we meet again in person for once. I know, it's great to be here. It's, but we live in the same country and we have to come all the way to America <laughs> to do an in-person session. Yeah, surrounded by our colleagues though, from all over the world, which is amazing. From here, and with the background noise for a second, it sounded like you said, surrounded by alcoholics. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, but it's not well, too far. Well, you know, maybe not at this time of day. At, at an emergency conference or something. <laughs> Uh, all right, so you have, you've had lots of talk, and one of your topics was a review of the prokinetics. Well, and it's an interesting topic too, because gastrointestinal dysmotility is so common in our patients, we use drugs and other therapeutic interventions, modifications to treat this disorder all the time. Okay, so indications, yeah, before Meropitin, metoclopramide was our number one anti-nausea drug as well. Are you yeah. still using it for that at all? Or not? I think my approach for nausea and vomiting is meropitant first because it's really the only on-label antiemetic we have. So I use that first. And then I tend to add on Dantatron second. And I would use metoclopramide as my third line antiemetic, but as my first or second line prokinetic. Okay. We try and separate vomiting and nausea for yeah. which we give antiemetics from regurgitation and evidence of gastroparesis on ultrasound or ileus on ultrasound for which we use prokinetics. Okay. So I think that's an important differentiation because there is good studies in dogs that show that the uh, classic antiemetics like meropitin and ondansetron do not have a prokinetic effect. So they're central acting in the exactly. CTZ, the key, like they walk in the, work in the brain, tell the brain, don't be so nauseous. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, they're not going to increase motility. So if we have a patient that's regurgitating associated with gastroparesis or has high gastric residual volumes and isn't tolerating enteral feeding, we need a prokinetic that's going to have a direct action on the gastrointestinal tract and increase motility. Okay. And how are you making that decision? Purely clinically? Are you, are you looking at going, you look a bit regurgy or, or are you scanning? 
Okay. Uh, I think all of the above. Okay. So uh, one of the questions that I had after the lecture was about brachycephalics and what I do with prokinetics in my brachies. We're very proactive in our brachies. Basically, any brachie that comes to the hospital and is admitted for any reason gets a prokinetic. Even if the owners say they don't regurgitate, we don't necessarily believe them. Okay. And our surgery team actually has some really good evidence that brachies that the owners don't say regurgitate, when you put a digi-trapper, a little device down into their distal esophagus and measure the pH there, that these there's these bursts of a drop in pH where acid is refluxing from the stomach up into the so esophagus. So even if they don't show it, it's They're absolutely refluxing. Silence so, yeah, all brachies, when they get admitted to the hospital, they for get anything. a prokinetic for anything. A, is it, and is that because of aspiration? Yeah, or? it's it's I suppose to prevent those catastrophic consequences that I think we've all seen. Yeah which was then a brachy comes in for maybe even a minor procedure, ends up regurgitating and aspirating in hospital and may die as a consequence of that. I suppose aspiration and the other thing that I, that crossed my mind, maybe it was here somewhere, I can't remember, is also the upper airway. They regurgitate in the upper airway and then they swell up. Absolutely, they, yeah. yeah, it exacerbates their upper airway obstruction and so they have this combination of problems that they'll have upper airway obstruction which can worsen associated with regurgitation and then pneumonia, which can lead to them needing to be intubated and on the ventilator and all kinds of bad things. Okay, so it's not just pre-surgery, it's brachycephalic Brachycephalics, yeah, it. and there's a really good study that came out of Tufts. I didn't actually talk about brachies in my lecture, but there's a really good study that came out of Tufts looking at prophylactic treatment of brachies with prokinetics. Um, they use metoclopramide, and they found that Brachies that were pre-medicated with metoclopramide had a reduced incidence of in-hospital regurgitation. Okay. Sorry. So there's evidence to support that approach. Okay, so a normal and in inverted commas brachycephalic gets it? Exactly. And then in your hospital, when else are you thinking of okay, Yeah, so animals so. that have clinical signs of regurgitation, and that can be fluid that actually comes out of their mouth onto the floor, or what some people call and some people hate the term silent regurgitation where they make this motion as though a bolus of fluid is coming up their esophagus and then they swallow it back down again. And I think for any humans that have had reflux, I'm one of them, I get stress ulcers when I get really stressed and I reflux. That happens to me all the time. So when I see a dog doing that, I really do think that's reflux or regurgitation. So those patients that we have witnessed episodes of regurgitation or reflux will absolutely commence a prokinetic. Often in addition with a lot of other management, we'll try and reduce the amount of opioids they're on. If they're on drugs like lignocaine, we'll stop that because lignocaine or lidocaine can cause GI upset in dogs. Ileus or upset in, in what uh, So it's been associated with vomiting quite reliably yeah. in studies and nausea, increased nausea scores. It's not been shown to slow gastrointestinal transit time, but it also doesn't improve GI emptying. Unlike in horses, where lidocaine actually improves ileus, okay. it definitely doesn't do that in dogs. So, yeah, if they're on any of those drugs, or if they've had, you know, an anticholinergic, or if they're on calcium channel blockers, various drugs that compromise motility, we see if we can adjust those uh, in addition to starting a prokinetic. And then the other group of cases might be a case that we haven't actually witnessed regurgitate, but we put in a nasogastric tube for some reason. Maybe it's a dog with pancreatitis that we want to do early enteral nutrition because we know that improves outcome, or a dog with parvo or a post-op septic peritonitis. In those cases, if we can see a big stomach full of fluid on ultrasound, we'll often put in an NG tube, empty their stomach, 
And if they have ongoing gastroparesis as evidenced by high gastric residual volumes or lack of contraction of the stomach that we can see on ultrasound, then we'll also start prokinetics in those cases. Yeah, I'll, I'll often start looking for it. If I, if I have a patient that you've got no reasonable reason not to eat and it doesn't look like it's just stress, but you, because I, I get this weird thing. If I have gastro for about two weeks afterwards, I think I get quite ileacy. Yeah. And it's, I just don't want to eat. I'll get really hungry and then I'll eat a bit and then you go, well, I can feel it just sitting there. And so I'll often think yeah. if I see a dog that's like, well, you should be eating, scan it and go, all right, yeah, you've got your list. Let's, yeah, let's absolutely. Do it. And reasonable. I think anti-emetic trials and prokinetic trials are certainly a good considerations in those patients that are anorexic in hospital. And then in the US now, they have marketed, labelled appetite stimulants that they also use. Oh, I don't have cool. any experience with those, oh, but yeah. uh, those drugs exist now as well. And then post-intestinal surgery. I think when I've done surgery podcasts, I don't know, part of me was always nervous of that going, well, am I going to rupture my, especially with a, with a resection anastomosis. Yeah. But then I had a surgeon say, oh, she'll see how it goes with a simple enterectomy. Otomy, sorry. I mean, yep. But she said if she does a, a, an ectomy, you know, a resection anastomosis, always prokinetics because she said they go severely. Yeah. So it, what are your thoughts? And this is another question that I got asked, and I didn't actually have any content on this in my talk, but if I do that talk again, I'm going to put some content in there because cool. people had that question. So obviously when we do surgery on the gastrointestinal tract, we disrupt motility. And the, more, the bigger the surgery, like a resection astomosis, the more we disrupt motility. We cut through muscle, smooth muscle of the gastrointestinal tract. We cut through nerves of the enteric nervous system. And so those patients are particularly prone to gastrointestinal dysmotility. So I do think that in patients that have gastrointestinal surgery, particularly resection astomoses, that we're more likely to need prokinetics. On the other hand, some people get very nervous because they worry that increasing motility might disrupt their anastomotic site and increase the risk of dehiscence. There's no evidence to support that theory that prokinetics increase the risk of dehiscence. I would love to see some studies on that though, because you know it's the bane of our existence. We know that probably on average about one in 10 patients with gastrointestinal surgery dehiss. It's more common with enterectomies and enterotomies. It's more common if they're hypoalbuminemic, those kinds of things. But it's a devastating complication, especially when you've just done an enterotomy. And so I do think more studies would be indicated, but my anecdotal experience is that I don't think that prokinetics are harmful in those patients. And often I think they're vital because they may have compromised motility from the handling of the gastrointestinal tract. Do we know how, how much movement do you get? Like how strong are those peristaltic responses from the prokinetics? Is it drug dependent? So it's, because I, the reason yeah. I ask is I think my surgeon's answer was, so you've done your surgery, you're suturing it for an animal with normal you're assuming that they're going to be have peristalsis yep. and your surgery is good enough to hold that, so why won't it hold? Yeah. Or are those peristaltic movements from I mean, a clock mode or something much stronger than a normal? They can be, and oh, it's right. dose-dependent. Okay. So the studies that have been done that look at different prokinetic drugs and the strength of these contractions have mostly been done in experimental situations in dogs, often back in like the 70s and 80s where they did surgery on the dogs, put pressure transducers okay. and things like that on the serosal surface of the stomach and intestines, closed them up, and then used those pressure tracings to assess motility. 
We know that with really high doses of prokinetics, you can have supra-physiologic okay. motility, but at the doses that we use them clinically, the evidence suggests that the strength of the contractions is very similar to what they would naturally have. So again, I think it comes back to support what your surgeons have said to you, which is that it shouldn't be any different to normal peristalsis, and so it should be safe to use these drugs in the face of an enterotomy or an enterectomy. Okay. And then, do we start? Do we go drug by drug? Sure. Should we start yeah. with the oldie but goldie? Yeah. Bit of clopramide. We've all used it. A couple of common questions that I've heard over the years is the one thing is side effects, extrapyramidal side mm. effects. I don't feel like I've seen it, but I don't know what I'm looking for. But I know when my kid was little, my dad was a was a doctor, and he was sick one day, and I called my dad and said, "Can I give him some clopramide? Because I had some." And he said, no, we don't use it in kids easily at all. And I was quite surprised. Yeah, it's a big deal in humans, these yeah. extra, extra pyramidal side effects. So I wonder if I've seen them in a couple of dogs, probably out of thousands and thousands. I've okay. used metoclopramide in over the 20 years since I graduated from veterinary school. I looked this up prior to my talk, and there's one recent report, a case study in a bulldog. But what they described was head and neck tremors after giving a metoclopramide bolus. And I think those of us that have been around for a long time realize that bulldogs <laughs> they do that. have idiopathic head tremors. Yeah. And often when they're stressed or you do something to them, they'll you'll induce those tremors. Yes. And then when we ask the owners later, you know, have they ever done funny head tremors? They're like, oh yeah, he does that sometimes. This is literally how I learned about bulldogs and head tremors. I saw one and went, that's really weird. And I said to the owner, something wrong with the dog. And she went, no, it's just the bulldog tremors. So I was like, yep. so I had to Google. I was like, oh, it is a thing. <laughs> well, I feel like once a year, one of our new emergency vets will see this happen to one of our ICU patients overnight. And it can happen in lots of different breeds, but bulldogs are most common. Yeah. And they freak out. They think it's a partial seizure. Because if you didn't know about the disorder, uh, it looks you like would. A yeah. There's actually still debate about the pathophysiology of those tremors. But I think there's evidence that they don't have crazy EEG activity in their brain. Yeah. But yeah, so this this case study of extrapyramidal signs was in a bulldog who had head okay. and neck tremors. Yeah, so I don't think it's been reported and I think it certainly doesn't preclude us from using metoclopramide. We should be aware of it, okay. but it's not the same situation as in humans. Which leads to the next question, which is surprisingly vague to me or controversial based on how common the drug is, is dose. Because your, your plums dose or your standard dose, what I normally use, even when we do it, when we talk about intermittent versus CRIs, but then I have heard several places of much higher dose to say, well, it should be much higher if you really want it to be effective. Yeah, and I think the evidence is limited. Okay. There is evidence that standard doses, so one to two mg per kg per day as a CRI, CRI. or a half to one mg per kg IVQ 6 to 8 to 12 is effective. It is dose dependent, so higher doses may be more effective, but those doses have been shown both in clinical populations and experimentally in dogs to be prokinetic. So I don't, in my practice, have a need really to go above two mg per kg per day total dose. Okay, so you're using the, the label dose, or suppose yeah. the textbook dose. Because I've, I've had a few where we've had them on those doses and you scan them and they're clearly still very flabby in there. Absolutely. And I bump it up and it freaks everybody out. We're like, this is too high. Yeah. And, I'm, and then it works. Yeah, and, and I think 
increasing the dose of metoclopramide or erythromycin is appropriate if they're not responding to standard doses, but I wouldn't start at those doses. And again, remembering all the other things that contribute to poor gastrointestinal motility and trying to optimise those things as well before I just bump up the doses. Because sometimes you bump up the doses and it still doesn't work because there's something else that you haven't fixed. Maybe the patient's really fluid overloaded and their gut's edematous. And so until you deal with the fluid overload, their gut's not going to work. So yeah, dose increase is a possibility. So let's talk about the things that, that you should deal with before you get start throwing in a third. So fluid overdose, overload, I did not actually, I didn't have that on my radar. Yeah, so I think both being behind on fluids and being overloaded can be problematic. So obviously, if they're in shock, treat the shock. Their gut's not going to move very well while they're in shock. If they're painful, treat the pain. Their gut's not going to move very well while they're painful. Obviously, if we need pure mu agonist opioids for analgesia, we have to use them. But if we can dose minimise our pure mu agonist by using adjunctive analgesia like ketamine, for example, that's great. I also showed a study in my talk about epidural morphine versus IV morphine. So epidural morphine delivered via an epidural catheter in dogs uh, doesn't have anywhere near the same effect on decreasing gastrointestinal motility as IV morphine. So, yeah, it essentially preserved uh, migrating motor complexes that were obliterated with IV morphine. So, but still giving sufficient systemic pain control. Yeah, still controlling pain with the epidural morphine. So in my practice, we use epidural catheters to deliver opioids plus or minus local anaesthetics. For some of our really severe polytrauma cases, we also use it for acute pancreatitis cases with refractory pain. We'll anaesthetize them, place an epidural catheter, and then use that epidural catheter to administer epidural opioids. And that, yeah, minimises their parenteral exposure, allows their gut to move while still controlling their really That's horrible really cool. pain. That's really cool. Is it easy to place? Or? Once you've practised a few times, it is. So like like is it easy things, to drive? No, it's really hard, but once you can do it, it's easy. Yeah, <laughs> and getting access to the epidural space is quite easy. I think most vets at some stage in their career would have done an epidural injection. So you're talking about back at the sacrum? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So a standard caudal lumbar approach getting access to the epidural space with a, 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 a Huey needle, so a needle that uh, has a blunt end on it, and then passing a guide wire through the needle into the epidural space along the spinal canal, cranially up to sort of the TL junction, and then placing a catheter over that guide wire, removing the guide wire, and the catheter stays in the epidural space. Is it a specific epidural catheter? They are. Okay. And Myla actually makes epidural catheter sets okay. designed for dogs okay. in different sizes and lengths. And you can also cut them to different lengths. And then you just have to be obviously very careful with asepsis because you don't want to introduce an infection. Yeah, I'm, I'm listening to you going, it sounds very cool, but I think I'll have to... It sounds very. It sounds quite scary. I, I yeah. feel like I'd rather deal with Ilias <laughs> than stabbing a dog in the spine. Yeah, it's it's definitely an acquired technique. <laughs> yeah. That the first few times you do, it's pretty scary. I probably did it the first three times on cadavers in cadaver labs to get practice, and then I did some clinical cases with somebody more experienced who'd done it before. And our anesthesia team do them quite commonly, so that gave me the confidence now to be able to do it. Sometimes you just can't feed the guide wire and the catheter and you can't actually place the catheter. 
So it's not always successful and if I'm not, if it's not going, I just abandon mission because I don't want to cause more problems than I help. But yeah, it is a nice option and I think especially for my acute pancreatitis cases that are just excruciatingly painful despite opioids and ketamine and paracetamol and local anesthesia, an epidural is a really good option. Are, are they as opioid bombed? Like, do no. You, are, so, are they, yeah, if you're doing only epidural opioids, they, their mentation will be normal. They're so it's just addressing the pain. Is it just abdomen or will it, will it work how, for yeah. a broken humerus? Depends how high you place the so, epidural catheter. So it's blocking locally at the at where the nerve the roots come nerves, out of the spine. Yeah. You Does it cause paralysis? It. Sorry, I keep I've got so yeah. many questions. So they go flat. Yeah, so their okay, back so legs will be flat. So it's like an epidural when you get a cesarean section. Yeah, exactly. It's okay. So it's not, you know, a, an option for the whole of the hospitalization. Yeah. But yeah, for a few days of really horrible pain, it's a nice That's choice. Quite cool. I like it. Yeah, I probably do it in and maybe only five dogs a year. Like it's not very many. But yeah. in those cases it's really helpful. Okay, I'm getting way down a rabbit hole. Here. <laughs> that's okay. That's why this is so fun. <laughs> that's so cool. And and you said morphine. Is it only morphine or no? Or do you use the and the reason I say morphine is just that there are formulations of morphine that are either preservative free or in a formulation that means they're not irritant to the spinal cord. Okay. That are specifically designed for epidural infection. But you can also use sodium channel blockers, local anaesthetics like bupivacaine, okay. Okay. and sometimes we'll do a combination of those okay. or rapivacaine. And we might do it as intermittent boluses, or you can even hook it up to a syringe driver and give a okay. continuous infusion via an epidural catheter. So cool. Yeah. All right, back to Ilias and yeah. prokinetics. Are, are some of the opioids worse for Ilias? Like, let's say I've got my... I had a really cool chat the other day with Amanda Kavanagh, Kavanagh about the drugs, and we talked about uh, methadone versus fentanyl. Yeah. And she said the reason she likes fentanyl is exactly that, because you get Ilias from pain, you get Ilias from opioids, and she likes that you can like, trade it minute to minute almost and go, well, let me try increasing your, your pain control. Yes. And then go, well, now you're really a lot of illness, so I'm going to back that off. Yeah. Is one worse than the other or, or not? I think that morphine is a particular culprit and there's good evidence in humans and dogs that morphine is particularly bad for GI motility. I have to say I don't use as much fentanyl as I did. I suppose for multiple reasons. One is that it accumulates over time in dogs that are on it for many days. Okay. And so while we think that it's rapidly titratable to effect, that really only applies for sort of the first day or so. Okay. After that, That's it accumulates in their body and it actually takes quite a long time, up to 12 to 24 hours from stopping the CRI until the fentanyl uh, is it concentrations gone? is gone. So that whole, so, my dog's been on it for two, three days, I want to wean it off, that slow wean. You can just switch it off. Just switch it off right. and expect that it will probably take a good 12 hours wow. for it to be gone. Okay, cool. In contrast, Remy Fentanyl is a short actor, more short acting pure mu agonist. Remy Fentanyl really does have rapid, rapid on off, but Remy Fentanyl is a little bit more expensive. Okay. Most practices don't have it. So we tend to use Remy Fentanyl in those cases okay. where we really want minute to minute, hour okay. to hour titration. But yeah, and I think. Fentanyl is an option. Fentanyl, Remy, fentanyl, in my mind, fall in the same category with regard to potency and side effects, just slightly different accumulation. And then, you know, methadone, I think, is a great choice. I use intermittent methadone. That's interesting. By because far the most it's common so interesting drug. Because I'm, I do that, but it's, yeah. I often feel like I'm old fashioned. 
because all my young colleagues love fentanyl CRIs. And I'm like, well, it's, yeah. it's a lot of work to set up. Or I'm just gonna, I could just stab it with a bit. Yeah, and well, I like, was saying after the lecture when I was talking to some people, you know, 20 years ago when I was first in practice, everyone was doing MLK infusions, yeah, yeah. right? Morphine, lidocaine, ketamine, that was a thing. And then when fentanyl became more popular, we switched to FLK. And fentanyl infusions have been really popular, you know, for a long time. But since I tried something different, when methadone became much more readily available and I started using intermittent methadone, I really liked it. I really liked the ability to sort of see what happened as the drug wore off. Obviously, you've got to be very attentive and we use pain scoring in our so ICU. Like, it's like four to eight hours. Exactly. Said, yeah. So we tend to pain score them um, every four hours and titrate accordingly. And so we have a couple different pain scales that we use in our ICU. We don't mind which the nurses use for a given patient, but we just ask they use a consistent pain scoring throughout hospitalization so we can compare and we'll sort of titrate methadone dosing to effect. Some dogs need 0.1 mg per kg Q6 hours and they're great. Other dogs need, you know, 0.4 mg per kg every four hours. And if you're 20 minutes late, you know, they will be really painful. But that tends to be what I do. There's nothing wrong with a fentanyl infusion. And there's no, been no comparisons that I'm aware of in dogs looking at effects on gastrointestinal motility. I'm so glad to hear you say that. So, yeah. <laughs> Next time I feel guilty, I'm going to go, this is what Claire does. That's yeah. right. It's Absolutely. also cheaper. It is cheaper, yeah. Than setting Absolutely. up a CRI and maintaining a CRI. And, Absolutely. And less labour intensive for the, for the nursing crew. That's it. And then there's less interruption. You know, if your patient goes to ultrasound or if the owners have a long visit outside, you know, on the grass their analgesia isn't being interrupted. So that's another consideration. Yeah, good point. Okay, thank you. This is gonna be a long one. So we are talking about metoclopramide actually. Yes. We're talking about things that make it worse. Obviously, are we missing anything else? Yeah, so we talked about fluid balance. We talked about pain and opioids. Another big thing is electrolyte and acid-base disturbances. Okay. And don't let me forget to talk about body temperature. So maybe I'll talk about body temperature first. Okay. So obviously a patient that is hypothermic is gonna have a slowing down of a lot of metabolic processes, including gastrointestinal motility. And I think people are well versed with this with feeding cats, right? We don't feed sick cats or sick puppies and kittens until we've got them warmed up. So if you've got a critically ill patient, warm it, make sure it's normothermic before you feed it. Otherwise, there will be ileus and it will be a problem for you. And then electrolyte disturbances, you know, we appreciate that hypokalemia, hypocalcemia or even hypercalcemia and potentially hypomagnesemia can all affect smooth muscle, uh, smooth muscle contraction, including motility. And then blood glucose concentrations also affect gastrointestinal motility. So in humans, there's a thing they call diabetic gastroparesis. So people that are hyperglycemic chronically tend to have poor GI motility which I think makes sense pathophysiologically because gut motility is designed to facilitate yeah. digestion and absorption of food. If your blood glucose is high, your body thinks that you don't need more I'm, food. I'm full, I can switch off my gut and exactly. do other things. Exactly, but that's designed for a, a healthy patient, not a diabetic patient that might be hyperglycemic all the time, or an ICU patient that might be hyperglycemic because of physiologic stress, or drugs that we're giving them, like steroids or beta agonists or vasopressors that might make them hyperglycemic. So I'm not, you know, I don't use a lot of insulin in ICU patients except when they're diabetic, but if you had protracted 
poorly controlled stress, hyperglycemia associated with critical illness, you know, persistent blood glucose is especially over like nine or 10. Maybe I would give a bit of insulin in those cases and maybe it would help with gastrointestinal motility. That's really cool. So before we just go drugs, see, fix the things that you can fix. Absolutely. That's good. So really hypermotile gut, do a blood gas, assess fluid balance, assess pain, critically go, is it pain? Absolutely. Uh, and, and see what's happening with all those things. Okay. Absolutely. That's super useful. And then metoclopramide. Yeah. Well, is that your first choice? or erythromycin. I do one or the other. I have to say probably in recent years, I do more erythromycin okay. than metoclopramide. It's very anecdotal, so you don't have to do that. If people are happy with their metoclopramide as their first line, that's totally fine. I use erythromycin either IV or via their nasogastric tube. We usually start IV, and then once their gastroparesis is under control, we'll switch to orally. And I just use it at a mig per kig IV Q8 hours. Some people use it a bit higher. Again, the effects are dose-dependent, so... If you're not getting the response you want with a mig per kig, do one and a half or two. Some people even do three or four mix per kig. The reason I don't start at those higher doses is because erythromycin's an antibiotic. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. And, you know, there's this theoretical concern that by giving an antibiotic, we might promote antimicrobial resistance. And you're nuking the gut biome. Correct. My theory is that as a consequence of that, the lower the dose you can get away with, that helps with the motility, the better. The higher the doses, the closer we're getting to actual antimicrobial doses, the greater the risk of killing bugs. Okay, so the prokinetic dose is lower than antimicrobial. Much lower. Okay. Much lower. So for erythromycin, it's like 20 times lower. Okay. So I think the hope with these really low doses is that at these low doses, it's so low that you're not killing any bacteria. And if you don't kill any bacteria, you don't have any adverse effects on the microbiome, but you also don't create a selection pressure on the organism that promotes resistance. So that's the theory anyway. There have not been good studies to evaluate this, and I hope that somebody does those studies because I think that would be really useful. And it's for those reasons that I use erythromycin rather than azithromycin because azithromycin is a more important antimicrobial from a stewardship perspective. And the doses that people seem to be using for prokinesis are a little bit higher. They're closer to the antimicrobial doses and they have a longer duration of action. Erythromycin you can give just one, sorry, azithromycin you can give just once a day because it has a really long post-dose effect but that worries me a bit more in terms of antimicrobial resistance. So why erythromycin over metoclopramide? Are you, are you feeling that it has a better effect? I do I feel that it has a better feeling. effect, but it's very anecdotal. Yeah. I think at any given time, you know, I would literally have half of my ICU patients on a prokinetic or multiple. And so even though anecdotal evidence is definitely a very low level evidence, We do assess these patients with serial ultrasound. We do measure gastric residual volumes and use that to track the efficacy of our therapy. And I do generally find, I think, that erythromycin is more effective as a sole agent, but there's also lots of animals that end up going on both. So we'll start one, see how it works for a while. And if they still have regurgitation, if they still have high gastric residual volumes, then we'll add the other drug in. 
Okay, so you can safely do both at their standard doses. You're not reducing. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Metoclopramide, CRI versus every six, what, how? Six, yeah. six, eight hours? I don't think there's a difference oh, um, right. in efficacy. Okay. I, I instinctively feel like a CRI would be better rather than kicking the guts for a couple of hours and then it goes yeah. back to sleep and then you kick it again. Yeah, it's interesting though, but when you think about what naturally happens is uh, our gut true. has periods when it's fasted well, yeah, of being quiet yeah. and then when it's fed, it triggers all this fed mm. pattern of motility. So maybe an intermittent stimulus to trigger motility may be more physiologic. Yeah. That's just, you know, very like theoretical but mm. I, I don't think there's a difference the only thing that may be real is that in humans there's some evidence that bolus doses cause cramping okay that's maybe worse than the cri yeah. so if you appreciate that in your patient which might be hard but if you do then switching to a cri would be advantageous a lot of our doctors do cris because that's what they're used to and i'm fine with that but okay. I don't always do it. Sometimes I'll do intermittent dosing. Okay, that makes sense. I, so again, coming out of vet school, metoclopramide was our number one antihistamic. Yeah. I remember my first job at older vet was even didn't even know about it. Just like, oh, antihistamics, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, but we were just injecting periodically. Yeah. Uh, and then it became, yeah, the the word on the street was that, oh, it's much cooler to do it CRI. Yeah. yeah. But I like your theory of. Yeah, you, know, you don't constantly yeah. have peristalsis. Yeah. You have it when you eat. Well, and sometimes, I have to admit, during COVID, we did fewer CRIs because our hospital was so full, yeah. we would have days where yeah. we would run out of syringe pumps. Yeah. And so we'd have to go around, I don't know how many syringe pumps we have in our hospital, probably more than 50, and we would go around and work out which patients had drugs on a syringe driver yeah. that we could stop and do intermittently. Obviously, another option would be to add metoclopramide to their maintenance fluid, but that means that you have to have a stable fluid rate or keep changing the bag. So, yeah, we started doing a bit more intermittent during COVID when we were running out of syringe pumps on a frequent basis. Mechanism of action, quickly, quick review. So both of these erythromycin and metoclopramide are smooth muscle prokinetics. Yeah, right? but through entirely different mechanisms. So okay. uh, erythromycin and the other macrolide antibiotics like azithromycin and clarithromycin are motilin agonists. Motilin is the hormone that triggers the migrating motor complex, which moves stuff through the gut in this big burst of activity and helps with gastric emptying. Uh, particularly of bigger size particles in the stomach as opposed to the small stuff that gets through all the time. Okay. Metoclopramide has multiple actions. So it has an action on dopaminergic receptors in the gastrointestinal tract, as well as antagonizing the effects of serotonin and has effects via acetylcholine. So it has multimodal effects that mediate its prokinetic actions, but both of them will cause increased motility, Metoclopramide also will probably increase the lower esophageal sphincter tone, which is something that uh, erythromycin doesn't do. Okay. So that's the golden question. Just pause quickly. Uh, do you want? Do you, are you getting food? Oh, oh. I, I grabbed a bite to eat on oh, my way. Oh, you did? Are you yeah. Sure? Do you want to? No. Do you want to go grab us food? I'm just worried that we're going to mess up our lunch. Yeah. There's roast beef. Uh, roast beef, please. Sorry. No, that's okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be sad if I miss. No, I'm good. I grabbed something. Yeah. So that's the question. So the increased sphincter thing, you know, with the tick cases 
on our side. Yeah. Uh, I know Robo them say they say there's no evidence that it works to reduce regurgitation in the paralyzed animal, but yet we use it because we think, well, maybe in case it does work a little bit, maybe it's like a wing and a prayer. Absolutely. Uh, based on the mechanism of action that you understand, would it would it work? Would you put a paralyzed dog, a lower motor neuron dog, on it in case it works? Or? On metoclopramide, absolutely. You, you would, okay. Yeah, and or I that think, tone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in those cases, again, you've not got much to lose. You know, yeah. a tick paralysis dog that regurgitates and aspirates can die. And, oh, yeah. you know, many of them do. do they die. don't survive <laughs> yeah. ventilation or the owners can't afford yeah. the duration of therapy they need. So, absolutely, I would put them on metoclopramide. And the reason we think it theoretically won't work is because the gut's also paralyzed or yeah absolutely i suppose all the reasons why that they've got gi paralysis in the first place may mean that our medical therapy can't overcome that but i don't think it hurts you know those cases have life-threatening regurgitation and would you do because it's life-threatening would you do both i think i would you would do both metoclopramide and And erythromycin erythromycin. yep okay that's interesting are we done with those or is there anything else around those that so, I'm missing out yeah, on? Yeah, the other drugs that we might use would be cisapride yeah. and then ranitidine. I was going to um, I thought ranitidine, but I've never... Yeah. Okay, yeah, so it does. So I tend to pull out ranitidine as like my fourth line agent. So if I've done metoclopramide and erythro, if I've got my hands on some cisapride, which we don't always have in our hospital. That's right, it's... it's Compounded. It's, it's compounded. You yeah. can't buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why have the humans stopped? Because there was something nasty about it in humans. Yeah, What's so it causes for? prolonged QT syndrome in humans, oh, okay. which is a precursor to pathologic ventricular tachyarrhythmias and death from ventricular fibrillation. So, okay. yeah, that's why we have to get it compounded. But, but we I don't see it in animals? Prolonged QT syndrome has been recognised in animals both naturally occurring and can be induced by medications. However, because our patients don't have atherosclerosis and generally have a much lower risk of ventricular arrhythmias and death, it's not really a clinically significant concern, even though you could potentially induce it experimentally. So you said third choice cisapride if you have it. Yeah. I don't even know. Is is it oral, injectable? There is an oral form is most commonly what's compounded. Some people do get an IV formulation compounded. Again, it's not commercially available. Compounded intravenous medications make me a little nervous. So I tend to stick to oral just because it makes me a bit nervous. In a small-scale lab, a pharmacist is making something that you're going to inject IV that's not necessarily... A mid-lab vibe. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Well, there have been some issues many years ago, probably eight years ago now, there was a really big issue with a compounding pharmacy in Boston in the US and they had fungal contamination in their compounding factory and fungal spores were getting into compounded steroids, injectable steroids that were used for joint injections. (laughs) You couldn't plan it better if you wanted to. (laughs) And spinal injections. And so a lot of people developed fungal meningitis and fungal like spinal empyema and people died of fungal infections from this compounding contamination. So yeah, I stick to oral drugs when I get things from a compounding pharmacy. And there's plenty of evidence to show that oral cisapride is effective in dogs and cats and rabbits. So yeah, I, that's what I use. 
And is there something about scissor pride potentially is a prokinetic for the large intestine as well? Exactly. Whereas the other two are not? Is that a fact? It is. Okay. So, yeah, it, it increases colonic motility, which is why a lot of us use it for cats with megacolon yeah. Yeah. and okay, constipation. So that's, yeah. that's a thing, absolutely. That can be a little tricky in our ICU patients, right? Because some of them have gastroparesis, but they also have diarrhea. They have large bowel diarrhea, but the front of their gut is paralyzed. So we contemplate whether or not a, something that increases colonic motility might make them have more diarrhea. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case or not. But yes, it definitely increases colonic motility. And there are studies in many veterinary species to show that. Okay. Is it less effective in the front half of the gut compared to the other two? Is that why it's our third choice? No, I don't think it is. I think it went out of favour because it became hard, hard to, to get. get. Okay. And then clinicians just didn't have experience using using it. But I think probably in the last five years, it's had a bit of a resurgence. Okay. There are some hospitals, when I did a locum at the University of Florida back in 2019, they're often using it as their first line prokinetic oh, really? for ICU patients. Okay, so it's no worse. It's just it's if, not worse. If, if you can get it, use yeah, it. If not, exactly. others are fine. Exactly. And it's cheap. It's usually quite cheap. And, you know, you, people tend to get it compounded in fairly large quantities for their hospital, so they've got it for a while. So, yeah, it's a good option. Dose range? Goodness, I don't remember off the top of my head. I don't use it enough. Normal? Yeah. Textbook dose? Textbook dose, exactly, yeah. You don't have any fancy tricks with it. Yeah, for a few of these things. I probably pull, in my hand, Cisapride out like five or ten times a year. Okay. And I look it up. (laughs) And then ranitidine, you'd say... Number four, if why, if yeah. why, why would you reach for it? So, and ranitidine, I think most people know it's a, a H2 receptor antagonist, a type 2 histamine receptor antagonist. It's a very weak uh, antacid drug, not as effective as famotidine or the proton pump inhibitors, but it also increases gastrointestinal motility and it increases both proximal intestinal motility and colonic activity as well. And so I sometimes pull it out for my cats with megacolon, uh, particularly if, you know, we're getting desperate and surgery is not a good option for the owner, try oral ranitidine. And for my ICU patients, I might use it like twice a year, so even less than cisapride. But it's, it's still available, so I will get my hands on it and use it if I'm desperate. Okay, cool. Am I missing out on anything? Were there any takeaways no. from your talk that you wanted people to... Like one thing to remember or have we covered it? I think the biggest takeaway was really that dealing with gastrointestinal dysmotility, particularly regurgitation and gastroparesis, high gastric residual volumes, requires this very multimodal approach. It's not just put them on metoclopramide and, and move on. It's just think about all the things that are compromising motility, optimizing as many things yeah. as you can and drugs are part of that using prokinetics yeah. is part of that but it's not the be all and end all and sometimes they don't respond in which case you've got to get creative the other thing that we notice is that for both metoclopramide and erythromycin they develop tolerance or tachyphylaxis okay. Okay. so after 48 to 72 hours the effects that you saw that helped in the first couple days tend to, uh, the body doesn't respond to the drug anymore. So sometimes I'll take them off of it for a day or two, switch to cisapride, and then if I need it, go back on again later. Or or if you're on one of the two and it's working, consider a day to add the other or switch to the other, absolutely. But yeah, I think it's just this really global thought process about all the things that could be upsetting the gut, trying to get all of it right. Early enteral nutrition is a really 
important component as well. As a prokinetic. As a prokinetic, yeah. because we know that a bolus of food in the stomach stimulates gastrointestinal motility, the protein, the fat, and the distension. And so bolus dose enteral feeding of a complete and balanced enteral diet, like Emirate or the others that are out there, does improve motility and should be used as part of that plan. Even if they've had a bit of regurgitation, they've had a bit of vomiting, even if they're a parvo puppy, we know that feeding those cases early improves a lot of outcomes, not just motility. Okay. Yeah, that was my takeaway. I think it's the, don't just look at what drug can I give to fix it. Think about why first. Beyond, Absolutely. yeah, because it's got a gastro disease, that's why. Is there something else? Absolutely. That, that, that wasn't on my radar. That's new. That's cool. Yeah. Thank Perfect. you so much for sitting down. As my always, pleasure. a pleasure. It's fun.